pretty sweet though. I'm enjoying it. Um, yeah. Well, I say we hop straight in um, with the discussion of superabundance. Yes. Because mm-hmm. I think I think I have a different perspective, um, or I at least have a counterpoint that I want to bring into this discussion. Because I like I like your perspective, Isaiah, but I think. As we've discussed, I think there's something missing. So why don't you start kick us off with what your all right what your thesis is? All right. So first of all, I'm posting on Facebook. We are live and talking about superabundance. So, so yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this topic. Um, superabundance is I don't I'm not sure where that got coined. Uh, I'm pretty sure I didn't come up with that term. Uh, probably Chamath Palapatia would be my guess if I had to take yes, just because I've been listening to some of his stuff. But uh, yeah, superabundance is the concept that the marginal cost of energy is continuing to go to zero. And actually, I, I like to back up and say, what is the cost of anything? So if you think of any product, any good or service, what uh, makes up the cost of that thing? And there are actually only two inputs of cost in my mind. One is energy. And the other is what I would call human decision-making. So if you take any good or service, I think you can compose all of the costs as one of those two things and you trace it all the way back. So, you know, the classic example of a pencil, um, you need energy to harvest trees, you need energy to process the wood, uh, and you need human decision-making to operate some of those machines. And when you're mining, you know, the aluminum for the end of the pencil out of the ground, Again, you need energy to fuel the trucks, and then you need human decision-making in driving the trucks, operating the machinery inside the mine. So the costs uh, of everything are really made up of only two elements in my mind, energy and human decision-making. Now, two things have happened in the last couple of years that I think make both of the marginal, marginal costs of those things start to go to zero. So... Energy, we've had for a very long time, actually, the ability to get almost free energy. We just haven't politically been able to do it. And that's still sort of true, but there are a few things I'm excited about. So uh, shelving that for a moment, the other thing that has happened is AI, right? And so AI is my solution to the marginal cost of human decision-making going to zero. And when I say going to zero, we're talking about an asymptote, right? We're talking about approaching zero, not being absolute zero. There will still need to be humans making decisions. But uh, overall, you don't need necessarily a human driving a truck. You can have an AI driving a truck. You don't need a human pointing you know, a drill at a certain place. You can have an AI doing that. So I see energy costs as approaching zero. I see human decision-making costs as approaching zero. And when you put those two things together, it actually means that you have the costs of everything going to zero because those are the two fundamental input costs. So I I don't know exactly when this starts to accelerate. There's a lot of like capital intensive stuff that has to happen beforehand, especially on the energy front. But um, I mean, within our lifetimes, I think we will see the costs of everything rapidly approach zero where you can have, you know, the thing you can have the private jet, you can have the yacht. Like I think we'll start to see shocking amounts of material wealth that were previously completely unimaginable, um, costing almost nothing food, obviously, but beyond that, just, um, you know, material abundance, uh, like we've never even imagined. Well, just a couple things, uh, for quick context. Um, uh, 
one of the assumptions, just to bring it back up, one of the questions that I had, and I don't have any particular research or or thought of this on my own, but I thought about what about raw material? You mentioned that you think that's um, uh, not really a factor because there's so much um, there's there's just a lot of unused raw material. Come again? You're talking about like materials. Yeah, yeah, like well, you need aluminum, or yeah, or what have you. I don't yeah, know how that works, but enormous, enormous amount of unused materials throughout the Earth. But then also there are you know extraterrestrial bodies uh, with you know an abundance of materials, and also you know the cost of energy going to zero means that you can synthesize materials as well. So with enough energy, you can create materials, you know, rare materials out of not rare materials, that sort of thing. And right. obviously the cost of that is prohibitively high today, but when energy becomes, you know, incredibly cheap, that's not as big. Yeah. And just one more thing that I wanted to mention is that there's an interesting situation where, um, because the government is slow and dumb, uh, I feel like there's a throttle, it has a, it has a throttling grip on the energy side of this equation. Uh, regu- heavy regulatory burden on things like nuclear. Um, but because it's slow and dumb, it's also been slow to react to AI. And so AI right now does not seem to have a big regulatory burden opposing it. But I wonder what could happen in the future um, if the government ever basically wakes up and gets in the way of that side of the equation as well. Yeah. I mean, the regulatory yeah, side... That's- yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Kip. You've been you've been wanting to chime in here, and then I'll take Gator's call. Yeah. Also, I'll just say this real quick, and then we can take the call. Um, so my my big issue with this theory is the fact that um, we have had the capability for energy to go to marginal zero for decades now with oil. I don't think people realize how abundant it is in due to how dense of an energy source it is, marginal cost could have gone to zero a long time ago. Um, And it hasn't specifically because of government regulation. And, you know, the, the flip side of that is, well, you know, that's because the government agenda right now is green energy. Counterpoint to that again would be, well, then why isn't nuclear um, all over the place? So I think that there's a significant issue with, government interference preventing this from being a reality in the uh, current state of every single world government, every single government in the world. Um, I don't, I don't think it's feasible that we'll see marginal cost of energy go to zero. The AI, I think uh, froze point was interesting that there's, there's really, it's difficult for the government to step in and regulate that. However, the government does regulate heavily um, where AI actually is applied. You brought up the example of driving semi-trucks. Well, Tesla's been working on that for well over a decade now, and that hasn't come to fruition because of government government meddling and because, obviously, the technology's not quite there. But <clears throat> I think that there, there are going to be huge blockers there that make this process not impossible and i'm not saying that it'll never happen 
because there have been examples of superabundance making qualitative differences for everybody's life. Things like dishwashers, uh, laundry machines, and things of that nature that are available now. Um, but I'm, I'm concerned that existing government is going to uh, cause the free market to not be able to solve this problem in any kind of speed. So I will ad address that in just a second, but I also want to let Gator have a chance to talk here. He's been waiting in the call queue. So Gator, you are now our caller and there you go. Hi, gents. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Yeah, Thanks good. Thanks. Um, no worries. It's an interesting uh, random conversation. Actually, I just found whilst it was um, on a, listening to a different show. Um, okay, look, I, I, I know that um, what I'm about to ask you could, depending on how you take questions, you might find I'm being combative. I'm not. I'm actually really interested in <laughs> what you're saying, and I have sympathy both ways for it. But to go to your original point, uh, the first question I would have to ask you is, what is the basis, the detailed basis for you claiming that the marginal cost of energy can go near to zero? Are you taught which which energy technologies fundamentally are you referring to there? So first of all, nuclear, just like plain old nuclear fission mm -hmm. should have been able to do this for you know 50 years already. If you look yep. at what it caught, if you just look at it, you know, a piece of uranium and the amount of energy that you can get out of that, you can get enough energy out of each, you know, piece of fuel, uh, to go and get the next piece of fuel. And so if you think of that as a cost system, you can drain, you know, just think of like a supply of, of uranium and then feeding a system in which it, each, you know, rod f creates enough energy to go get the next rod. And there's a surplus, um, you should be able to sort of set a consumption path where the surplus energy is genuine surplus. Yeah. Um, and then that, you know, as, as long as that supply is large enough that uh, you have basically free energy where the supply of that can overwhelm any, you know, market demand of it and drive costs down that now, as far okay. as the supply of uranium goes, the supply of uranium is absolutely massive. There's uranium everywhere in the earth, uh, in the oceans, and it's, it's well distributed throughout the planet. And so, the only reason we haven't had that is, I would say, is a political issue. Um, the, the cost of nuclear is entirely a political question. Okay, I'm really relieved that you said that because if you'd, because because I think that that shows that is a realistic answer because this link I gave you to Professor Michael Kelly, who's retired now, former professor of uh, electrical engineering, but he does great analysis on net zero um, from an engineering energy in, energy out paradigm right and that's why i shared it because it's really important for people to look at and i agree that the obvious flaw in any of these arguments about um well it, the total climate change energy paradigm is that the numbers just don't stack up if we should be embracing nuclear regardless you know um, and, and we haven't and it's not just uranium is it there's thorium reactor design which exactly. has been on the a long time but obviously was never because it doesn't have a weapons application right but if you look at the claims of the thorium fluoride salt bath essentially they're saying that the reactor is impossible to over over overload or overheat because you essentially pull the tap out of the bath the salts disperse 
because the reaction, thermic reaction stops, game over, right? It's I'm not sorry. even unsafe. It's, this is not theoretical. China's already doing it. Yeah, and, and so and so, and thorium's even more abundant than, than uranium, right? And it doesn't have any weapons application. So now, the, uh, but when you compare the narrative, which is peddled by both the corporatocracy and the government, and I think this is where I converge, diverge with you a bit, because I don't believe it's fair or realistic to try to push this onto government because government colludes in a corporatocracy with corporations and they're doing things for very specific reasons because of massive amounts of top level corruption, insider trading and the power, the revolving power and money cycle. Right. And I think that it's better to look at it in those terms. But what I would say is Kelly points out that this obsession with renewables is bullshit because the overall energy consumption of the human race is going up. 80 plus percent of our energy has always come from fossil fuels, then nuclear, and then fractionally other sources. And you can't create hydroelectric stuff where there isn't good geography, but that's, just, that's or hydrothermal, but that's geothermal, sorry, but that's quite a remarkable contributor well ahead of renewables. And he's pointing out the energy density, um, so it's megawatt per kilogram of, an, of, of, of a source, is pathetically almost zero for renewables compared to any other energy source. And yeah. just building more of it does not move our paradigm. It can never solve the problem, right? Now, we're being lied to, fast lied to, about that idea through every bit of the energy climate change management narrative. And, and that in itself is a way to really bend the outcome that you're talking about. Because if people believe a falsehood, they can't pursue the truth. They can't collectively pursue the truth, which is solutions that you and I are suggesting, right? And I think that's a massive part of it, but that is being run by government and corporations together. That's not uh, one party or the other, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I, I definitely do see what you mean. Um, and I have different ideas on how to solve that particular problem, but I want to give uh, Kip or Elijah a chance. To... Yeah, I want to... Um... Kip. I want to hear Kip talk about something I've heard him talk about before, if you don't mind, Kip, uh, where you've been talking about uh, the the cost of oil specifically should have gone to zero. That's that's something that you kind of surprised me with a couple months ago, like the concept of why why isn't you know oil already gone? Yeah, so I mean, I'll start by addressing something that Gator mentioned, which you um, said it. We're we're kind of pushing all of this on governments and i think that's that's kind of a fair accusation at least i'll take that because there there certainly is collusion between big oil companies um i mean a lot of them around the world are state owned right so it's not it's the same thing but um there are certainly private companies in the u.s that collude with um united states government we could talk about numerous examples of that speculatively and factually. So I think that's absolutely the case. The reason I'm putting all of it on the government though, is because um, in a system that was in a, in a market that was truly free and separated from government intervention, what would occur is somebody, somebody would be willing to sell their oil for cheaper because they could make it, they could produce it for cheaper. They could refine it for cheaper. 
And once people realize that there's somebody who's making it for 40% less and they're not colluding with anybody, eventually that company's going to get market share and eventually the marginal cost of oil is going to go to zero because on a, on a smaller scale than nuclear, obviously um, uranium enriched uranium is uh, exponentially more dense in terms of potential energy than oil is, but oil is still dense enough that it has the same result in a free market where it produces more, it produces surplus energy um, as a fuel than it costs to um, yeah. extract it and refine it. So and the whole, the whole the, peak oil thing ended up being a complete, you know, fraud. Like the reason that we stopped, uh, the reason that there was this faux peak oil is that we stopped looking for oil. As soon as we yeah. started looking for oil, we started discovering it again. Yeah, and I mean, there's there have been reserves found all over the world. Um, you know, just recently there was oil discovered in the Arctic, and China and Russia are working pretty hard to get at that oil. But if I remember correctly, the reserve found in the Arctic is equal to a third of all of the world's known reserves to date. So like, there's oil everywhere. Um, so yeah. Um, I feel like we've we've hammered this topic in enough for this episode. I want to make sure that we hit the other things that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, so, well, I'll make a closing statement on it then. I, I think that yeah. the, the key here, and this is going back to, we keep talking about government regulation. I think the key for people to understand is that the reason that we have, okay, so first of all, nuclear technology has been around uh, in use since the 60s as a commercial energy source. And the reason that it has not, you know, dropped energy costs everywhere to, let's say, a hundredth of, of price of, you know, kilowatt hour prices is simply regulation. You can't build nuclear power plants quick enough, big enough. I was doing some research into this and approximately 60 to 70 percent of the cost of a nuclear power plant is actually the cost of capital because it takes you so freaking long to build trying to deal with the regulations. So while you're sitting there dealing with these regulators, you're, you know, your money could have been sitting in the S&P or sitting in bonds or something like that. And so that cumulative cost of capital, the opportunity cost over the risk-free rate is literally 70% of the build cost of nuclear, tying that money up for that long. That's insane. And that's, yeah. So the, our entire like, idea of like the cost structures of nuclear are just completely wrong and they're completely driven by, uh, by regulation. And you just have to look at what China is doing, building 400 nuclear reactors for the next 10 years. They're building them at a rate of around two or three years to go from zero to turning on a nuclear facility. The last, I mean, the last time the, the U.S. was able to turn on a nuclear facility, it took like 20 years to build it. Uh, and it's, that's just regulation. There's nothing, there's nowhere, uh, there's nothing else to say. It's, it's regulation. So backing up, like my point here is we already have all of the technological capabilities to bring energy to zero. Um, the other question though is, okay, cheap energy, that's one thing. You still have to have this concept of like the human input side. The AI breakthroughs are a little bit more recent. And I think the combination of these two things means that you could actually you know, meaningfully have uh, an exporting unit somewhere in the world that is exporting goods, you know, similar to how China suddenly started exporting goods like 10 times cheaper than everywhere else in the world. 
where Japan was able to, you know, create cars at a lower cost and a higher quality. Uh, and they did those through, you know, different cultural differences and, and various things. And then over time took automation uh, further than everyone else. And so solidified those gains. I think that it's possible to have a geography somewhere in the world that has, uh, you know, vanishingly small energy costs and vanishing, vanishingly small human decision-making costs that is able to produce uh, something the world has never seen before, which is material goods that um, approach zero cost. And that is itself a political reality. And I think that that political reality will trump uh, the others that we're talking about because it is, you know, as much as you, you know, want to be corrupt and crony within one political sphere, if somebody in the world is offering, you know, your citizenry goods that are a hundredth the cost that they can be gotten, you know, in your own country or in the countries that you trade with, that's an enormous amount of political pressure. And I think that that pressure will build over time and eventually be, you know, too much to withstand. Yeah. I mean, so I, yeah, I think that's, that's the point at which our disagreement comes to a head. And I think we should tackle that uh, in the next, next show, but I wanted to jump into the next um, topic. Hey, if I, I could um, is, say one thing, hopefully you want to make it, Hopefully this isn't something that I missed while I was trying to figure out my uh, technical issues. But um, it seems like what Isaiah is uh, proposing, ironically, is um, when you have a degree of political suppression of market forces, uh, it seems like, Isaiah, you're zooming out and saying that there's a marketplace of states and eventually competition between states will um, free markets from localized political interference. So you're saying that there's markets, a level of markets, and then a level of politics suppressing those markets, but you're sort of positing a, another higher level of markets in the sense that states are always competing between each other um, and that that's eventually going to uh, overcome the political forces. Yeah, it's close enough, but all right, Kip, take it away. What's our next topic? Yeah, so I mean, this is something that, Fro, uh, you mentioned you wanted to discuss, and so I'll let you kick this one off. Um, so what what do you mean by the zero? What is the zero interest rate phenomenon? What is, what is going on and what has been going on over the last 20 years? Um, I think I, I know where you're going with this, so I guess I'll phrase the question this way. How have economics impacted social life in this? So... This actually was just something that um, Isaiah mentioned in passing, um, and I didn't really understand it. So it's actually something that I need to pass off to him. He just mentioned something about, um, yeah, woke being a zero interest phenomenon. Um, so what do you have to say, Isaiah? Yeah, basically, Fro just completely lifted that topic from my Twitter. So there's that. <laughs> um, Sorry, Fro. I thought yeah, you had no. something valuable to say. I won't, won't make that no, assumption Fro, again. He doesn't have anything. Yeah, he doesn't. You made that mistake once, it won't happen again, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> no, so, yeah, woke, woke politics uh, is a zero interest rate phenomenon. It's not that there have not been any woke people when interest rates were higher. It's just that they couldn't gain influence when you actually had to make money. And I would say it's much more of a last like three or four year phenomenon than, than 10 or 20. And specifically, I'm talking about it in the corporate uh, the corporate world, the capital markets. 
So like backing up, especially with ESG, oh, okay. yeah, I, uh, I think it's really important here. for people to, yeah. So I think it's really important for people to understand like what happened with ESG over the last three or four years. And I've talked to, um, I, you know, at first I thought this was completely driven by, you know, some of the big capital allocators, BlackRock and some of these guys. But um, I was surprised to find that it's actually not. I, I was talking to some capital allocators who are not necessarily, you know, woke themselves, but they have, make, have made some woke plays. And, and they were saying, you know, actually, this is driven by the LPs. Like the LPs are asking for ESG. And so I tried to start thinking about like, why is that? Why, why did they do that? Um, I think it, what it comes down to is in a zero interest rate environment, everything is going up and to the right. And what you can't really see is that asset prices are inflated. You know, now we see that really clearly, but it was really difficult to see a few years ago that asset prices were being inflated by funny money. And inf there was hidden inflation that people weren't really aware of. And so that, you know, up and to the right wasn't really legitimate. But anyway, in a, in a market environment where all you can do is win, um, you start looking to tithe somewhere. I think this is what it comes down to. People started looking for somewhere to tithe. And the, you know, moral center of society became this woke thing because they offered absolution of guilt. And if you can, one, have your guilt absolved, and two, still make, you know, six or 7% gains uh, on your money, like who wouldn't do that, right? So, you know, you're sitting there with 30, 40 million, and you say, okay, I'm going to allocate 10%, 30% of my portfolio to ESG funds. These funds are still making 7%, 8%. They might even be beating the S&P in, you know, in a microcosm. Um, so I can absolve my conscience and I can also make 8% of my money. Well, obviously it turns out now that ESG funds have dropped, you know, 70% because asset prices were massively inflated and especially ESG ones. But I think that all of this started with absolution of guilt. It started with people, uh, you know, seeing everything going up to the right and not understanding the difference between actually what's a win and what's not and, and wanting to tithe somewhere. So that's my kickoff. Yeah, that's that's not a, where I was expecting you to go with that. Can I take it in a totally different direction? Yeah, definitely go for it. Okay, because I, I don't disagree with, with anything you said, and I think it's spot on. But I think, so I'll take this in a direction that can kind of tie into our previous topic. Um, I think that money... And by money, I mean simply buying power. Um, an increase in buying power is classically associated with uh, corruption, moral corruption uh, of all kinds, right? I think what an increase in buying power actually draws out is an amplification of whatever's already there. Um, and so in a society as a whole, if the society is broken and buying power increases, it's going to amplify that and turn it up to 11 uh, really quickly. And so that's why I, that's why I said, what, what's been going on in the last 20 to 30 years, because 
what's been happening is um, as men have not needed to go work 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week to provide for their families, um, they've had the time to become degenerate. And if they already were degenerate, but they're too busy to actually exemplify it because they were mining coal, um, you didn't see it, but it was still there. And now that they have value ads made by better people than them, like dishwashers, washing machines, forced air, air conditioning, electric lighting, all these kinds of things that are in effect an increase in their buying power. It has enabled a rapid uh, slide into rampant, rampant degeneracy. So um, I don't disagree with anything you said, Isaiah, but I think it, I think it applies uh, down the scale as well. So I, how are you tying that to zero interest rates though? That, that sounds more like you're just saying wealth creation. Sorry, I forgot to tie that in. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll, I'll tie that, tie that in real quick. But what I mean by that is um, interest rates going to zero um, effectively just mean free funny money. Right. And it's a, it's a direct, correlation to an increase in buying power for um, consumers. And so that's where I was tying that in. But I guess my mind was wandering a bit back to our previous discussion um, where we're discussing the cost of energy and the cost of compute and decision-making going to marginal zero. Um, all of those things are just um, interest rates going to zero. Um, cost of energy, cost of compute, all of those things going to zero just translate into an increase of buy in buying power for an individual, right? And so that's where I was tying that in. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that's still more relevant of an argument that's, that's just saying, you know, increased wealth leads to... Um, I don't know, like sloppiness of the soul or, or like lower consequences um, for virtue. I, th I think that's really what it comes down to is like, you don't have to be super virtuous in a wealthy society in order to survive because ultimately, you know, survival is uh, in, in, in a, as a generality, a function of virtue. And this mm. society has gotten so wealthy that, you know, you don't necessarily need virtue for survival as much. Um, but I think the zero interest rate thing particularly has more to do with like what happened at a cultural level as far as the people who have capital, who deploy it and who manage it. Because I, I, I just think that there's been this really, really radical left shift in corporate America, which does have an influence on everybody else because corporate America, you know, has a voice and has an, an audience with, with everybody. Uh, they make the entertainment that we consume and all these things. And I just think when in this interest rate period, this low interest rate period, you could put together an ESG fund that actually, you know, did decent numbers, 
because everything was doing decent numbers and the the numbers were completely funny. And, and now we find out they were completely funny, but you had this long period where that was a normal thing to do. The other thing that's interesting about that, and I might've talked about this before in the group chat is just that, you know, if, if you just think about the dynamics of what happens when you make uh, an investment with a, a thesis, this is a classic problem in capital allocation is if you make a very large investment with a specific thesis behind it, you run the risk of, you know, muddying your market, affecting the market with your thesis itself. So you end up, you know, mutating the market to look a little bit too much, you know, like the outcome you were expecting. And I think that's exactly what happened with ESG, where there was, you know, a huge capital pool that was targeting, let's say like 70 plus ESG scores. And what that did is it actually drew companies into ESG scores, meaning instead of saying, okay, here's this company with 70 ESG, let's go invest in them. They went out there and said, hey, we have $100 billion to apply to 70 plus. And then a bunch of 50 ESG and 60 ESG companies create, you know, made themselves into 70 ESG companies in order to access that you know, tranche. And that, you know, two things happened there. One is that obviously like those companies got super woke in order to access the capital. But then the other thing that happened is it actually, you know, crossed the wires of the, you know, initial investment thesis because, you know, the, they attracted the market rather than investing in the market. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my. Gotcha. Fro, do you have any, any thoughts on that? So many thoughts on that. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. I've been having major technical difficulties. Um, hopefully they're resolved. Dude, you're such a boomer. Yeah, froze our resident. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Boomer. <laughs> well, um, hey, I'm in my defense, our, our last... in my defense, I will say that this site is still quite buggy. Um, for example, when I was having issues, I was like, well, maybe I'll log out and log back in. And maybe I'm just dumb and couldn't find it, but I could not find an option to log out. So, yeah, definitely dumb. Works on my machine, bro. Yeah. I, I, Wait, I, how do you log out of this this website? Uh, you I click my name and click the logout button. I see it in the bottom left. I better not hear any David Sachs hate. This is a fantastic app. We love David. We hope that you <laughs> our show. All right, all right, I see. I literally, I literally tweeted. I literally tweeted at David Sachs when the show started and said, hey, David, what are you up to right now? Can you join the show? <laughs> Maybe he's shame. the one other listener we have right now. Yes. Thank you, David. One other listener. It's either that or Sophie. <laughs> <In my perspective. laughs> Alrighty. Um, who wants to kick off what we learned in 2022? Oh, Biggest boy. lessons from last year. Dude, I want to hear what you have to say because it sounds like you've <laughs> – to be frank, it sounds like you've learned a lot. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I can I can kick this one off. Um, so I guess the, the primary thing – or not the primary, but the, the first, first thing I'll talk about is uh, something that Isaiah said to me somewhere near the beginning of the year, and I was super resistant to um, the concept, but – Towards the end of the year, I realized he was he was right, um, and that's that small businesses are just jobs, 
Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because if you start a small business and one of the founders wants to work there indefinitely, it'll work and it, it'll work great. Um, but you have to have that. You have to have a founder um, who wants to stick it out if you're a small business. And, and I, I should probably define that real quick. The rough number that Isaiah and I came up with was gross revenues under $5 million per year. Um, because in that range, you can't afford to hire a CEO who's paid enough to care about your business. Um, and so, and if you don't have that, then you have to be the CEO or one of the other founders has to be the CEO because you're going to be the only person who cares enough about it. So, um, that, that was a big lesson because it was a big paradigm shift in how I was approaching, um, decisions in my career. So that's number one. Number two is, um, and this is, this is an obvious one. It's not something that I didn't know, but it's something I emotionally grasped in 2022, which is that success isn't measured in dollars. Um, I've seen, I've seen a lot of, sounds like something uh, with no dollars. Yeah. I was going to say that sounds like poor people propaganda. Sounds like broke talk. Okay, well, let me let me qualify it because I'm not saying being broke is okay and being a loser financially is okay, but it's not it's not enough. Like if you're if you die worth five billion dollars, but your kids don't talk to you, you still failed. Now, it's good that you made five billion dollars, but it doesn't matter. Right. And so this kind of ties into the concept that your life as a man um, from the, from, from a human finite perspective, isn't a, isn't a zero sum game. So if you fail in, if you fail in one area, you really have failed everywhere and everything else is, it is took, so. you heard it here for first folks. It took Kip until 2022 to realize what Jesus said back in, you know, 30, you know that if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul, <laughs> Can we get a slow clap? You know what, man? Clap for Kip. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> no, no, no. Just I, because, actually, just because I, y'all I can... aren't going to admit the embarrassing lessons you learned this year doesn't mean <laughs> okay. I'm not going to. So you can hey, show I'll, I'll talk about the embarrassing <laughs> lessons. No, actually, right. I do want to say I actually had a similar realization. And it wasn't even from me reaching a certain level of wealth because I definitely haven't. Uh, like, I'm... I'm more comfortable this year than I have been in previous years, but I'm still like very, very far away from, from like being there. It was actually more paying attention to some, a couple of other people that I know who do have money and just realizing, you know, the, the quality of life differences where they come from are actually not where I expected, meaning time freedom and the ability to, you know, spend time on the people and the things that they cared about seemed to be like the, the expression of the ultimate expression of wealth, which takes a different, you know, number than you would think. Like you don't actually need that much money to have freedom with your time to spend with the people you care about and spend on the things that you care about. Um, and so that did kind of shift my like goals perspective in a little bit from, well, I don't want to say that I was like only aiming at a number, but yeah, ju- just realizing like there's a life value 
that money has a diminishing marginal return for. And that number is like probably closer to like 10 million than a hundred million. But Fro, go ahead and call me. Um, quick, uh, quick technical question. Is my leaving my mic on causing any disruption for y'all? Because I get a cutout in sound every time I turn it off or on. Uh, we just no, hear it's fine like, on my breathing. So. Yeah, I'd much prefer to never hear that. Yeah, anyway. Um, Anywho. So I know I've also had, I I guess. Uh, Fro, do you, can I just run through my last four real quick? I, oh, I have yeah, four more it. lessons. Oh, wow. Damn. Um, yeah. Yeah. So number three and four are kind of, at least I learned them uh, for the same reason. And I'm going to keep my discussion here brief for the sake of the people involved. But. Ultimately, hire slow, fire fast, um, and bad company corrupts good morals. So, yeah, ultimately, I learned that if a business relationship isn't working out, if an employee or a partner isn't the right fit, uh, dragging it out is not fair to the other employees, the other partners, to you, or to the person who is who is causing the problems. It's just... Literally, it's a nightmare for everybody, um, and it runs the same into into point number four: bad company corrupts good morals. If there's a person who, you know, because they don't fit with the culture, or because they have a failing, or whatever the case may be, uh, if they're poisoning the environment of your business, um, or just poisoning uh, your friendships, um, they're it's not worth it. Needs to end. Gotta, gotta cut it off quick. Uh, last two are pride ruins everything. Um, and it's uh, one of those things that, you know, every time you think that you think that you've, you've overcome it in a certain area, you realize that you've just discovered a deeper level of, of the problem, which has been frustrating, but uh, making progress. And then the final one is uh, wasting any time is is the worst thing you can do with the resources that you've been given. Uh, time is your most valuable asset and losing any of it for for a reason that is not justifiable is is abominable. So those are my top six lessons from 2022. Well, um, I must admit, I feel slightly high-roaded because you have, I feel like all of yours have at least a moral dimension, except for, you know, maybe the first couple. But uh, all I have to say, my my one lesson that really just sticks out like a blazing sigil in my mind is don't fight the Fed um, because it's not going to work. I... So I recently just reorganized my entire stock portfolio. It was in, it was mostly in TD Ameritrade with just a little bit of um, sort of like uh, frivolous bets in Robinhood. Um, and TD Ameritrade is a super uh, terrible platform. It's not intuitive at all. And as we've seen in this call, I'm super bad with technology. So something that's not super intuitive is going to be a, a big headache. So I moved it to... Robinhood, 
long story short, I got to review in depth all of the huge mistakes and losses that I've taken in the stock market. And it was great to look back on some of the charts uh, for the performance of equities that I bought into and see just how close to the peak um, I bought some of them and how catastrophically they had slid after that. All that to say, um, I took cash in hand and threw it into equities out of fear of that cash having diminishing returns. But what I wasn't paying attention to is that um, inflation devalues and removes the purchasing power of dollars. And the things that I was throwing those dollars into to avoid that fate, to avoid, to avoid inflation, were the exact things that were overpriced um, and in which and for which dollars had lost their purchasing power the most. So I was throwing it into um, growth equities and um, other bullish or speculative um, areas. And so those have slid enormously. Um, instead of really, since I was approaching so closely the peak of the free money period, it would have been much better to hold that money in cash and wait until the Fed started uh, removing currency from circulation and that sort of cooling off and uh, deflationary phase uh, began. Um, so, yeah, not not paying attention to the meta narrative of what was happening with the Fed and um, – the banking system, which really encapsulates our entire economic system and our equity market in particular, uh, cost me a lot. But I'm optimistic because I think I've learned from that lesson. I've taken much more cash-heavy approach, waiting for... Um, I think the equity markets are going to cool off even more. Um, and so I'm waiting for that and looking forward to really... Um, aggressively entering those markets uh, nearer to the bottom and profiting from the next round of uh, inflationary behavior from the Fed. Yeah, I feel that. I've got, uh, I've got a sub point of, uh, of one of those in mind. But yeah, man, the macro is just something I've never thought I had to pay attention to before. And suddenly you have to pay attention to it. I guess you just don't have to pay attention until, you know, it's 10 years since the last event. And then suddenly you have to pay attention again. Yeah. Well, that's the, th that's the problem for all of us is, well, I, maybe I can't speak for all of us, but for me, I've never been cognizant of economic activity during anything but an inflationary period. Like the whole time that I've been thinking you mean about just because of how old, how old you are. Yeah, how old I was and when I started paying attention to, you know, the market and, and stuff like that, that whole time was in a bull market. So it gave me a completely one-sided view of how the market worked and what to expect. And um, yeah, yeah so super obvious, that. super obvious in retrospect, but it was one of those things where, you know, maybe I'm just dumb, but I had to have some boots on the ground experience in order to learn it. And to be frank, I'm I'm not... You know, maybe this is overconfidence or, or, or what Kip was talking about, pride speaking, but I don't, I don't think it is. It's, I think I got off pretty cheap. Um, I, I didn't pay much, I don't think, for the lessons that I learned from it. Well, that's, that's great. fantastic. 
No, yeah, yeah. and I and I I'd say that about. I mean, there are a couple couple other business lessons that didn't make my top six, um, and yeah, like I paid maybe fifty or sixty thousand dollars, maybe eighty. I don't know to learn uh, more lessons this year than I've than I've learned ever. Yeah. Uh, I think the boys, we got to figure out, we got to figure out how to not buy our lessons after the fact and buy them before the fact you can buy a good book (laughs) for 10 bucks, you know, and learn a lesson that, that would cost you $80,000 if you didn't learn it beforehand. Like that's the problem with being a man is you never, you never actually learn the lesson until you feel it. (laughs) Right. Right. And like, okay. The thing is that I completely intellectually understood yeah. Um I would say at least 60%, probably 80% of the like um intellectual bricks that went into the structure of the lesson that I learned, but it was like it was the application in real terms that I think I would have had to do I would have I would have had to have done so much more studying um just an incomprehensible amount more of abstract study in order to get to the point where I could have predicted what I just learned in the course of a year from just doing retarded stuff like buying into three times leveraged bull ETFs right at the peak. You know, Ooh. sometimes you just have to do that. And uh, <laughs> I forgot about that'll, that. One. That'll, learn you. <laughs> <laughs> that'll learn you real quick. Oh, man. You know, yeah, there's a certain, know. Amount there's... Of, a certain amount of uh, freaking around and – Quite a lot of finding out. <laughs> nice. Well, Isaiah, let's go to you. Oh, what funny. do you got? Yeah. So my first lesson of 20, 2022 is don't be desperate. So I had, you know, and we're talking about like spending way too much money learning lessons. Um, I spent a very long time learning this lesson of just like, don't be afraid of your losses and just take your freaking lumps sometimes. Don't draw it out. If you have something that's an L and you know it's an L, don't keep dragging that out. Just like cut the loss and and don't be desperate about, about dragging it out either. Like we talk about, you know, having spent $50,000 to learn a lesson. I spent about $130,000 to learn this lesson. And the interesting thing is if you just back up and start from a position of strength and say, okay, this is an L. I made a terrible decision on this and, you know, I'm going to have to cut a loss. I've actually found since that you find interesting workarounds, you know, when you just accept the L and you say, you know, this was a failure. I'm going to cut it clean. I'm going to walk away from it. You actually sometimes can find some clean breaks and you can find some ways to salvage it and like new perspectives you hadn't seen before. But if you just try to hang on to something and drag and drag and drag, like you can end up, you know, three, four times further into the hole than if you had just cut the, cut the loss at the beginning. Um, so yeah, like that was an incredibly expensive lesson for me to learn, uh, over the course of several years. And I would say like, it, it just reached fruition this year realizing, um, like, yeah, you have to, you have to let individual investments like stand or fall on their own and, and keep some distance from them. So that was my first one. Um, my second lesson that I learned is leverage other people's time. I finally got a secretary and the, man, that might be the best decision that I made this year. <laughs> uh, other people's time 
is like the ultimate secret of capitalism. It just is other people. Uh, I mean, th my company does this for me, right? Like they leverage my time. And if I wasn't, you know, sitting at my desk and doing what I'm doing for Bridgewater, they would not be able to move as far as they're moving. So this is a mutual arrangement. Now I don't want to be working forever. And so I, I think at the end of the day, like it's a good goal to not, you know, be, um, you know, to be a capitalizer rather than a, a laborer. But uh, some people want to do that their entire life and that's great. And you should definitely take advantage of that. There is um, it, like, there's an infinite difference between what you can do with your time when you're le leveraging other people's time and when you're just, you know, doing it alone. So I've, I've freed up enormous amounts of time in my schedule that I had no idea were there um, just by, by doing that in a few different areas this year. So that's, that's number two for me. Number three is kind of what Fro was talking about. Macro trends matter. So yeah, similarly, like I've never had to think about the macro before this year. And then suddenly, you know, the macro is knocking on all of our door, uh, all of our doors um, coming to call. So like just being aware that these things happen in cycles, this is super obvious for anyone who's over the age of 35, but we are not over the age of the 35. And so it was not obvious to us, but macro matters. In another 10, 12 years, I'm going to be looking for, okay, what are equities like right now? What are growth stocks like? Is this thing overheated? Uh, can I take a chill for a couple of years and, you know, maybe I'll lose like 30%, but I'm not going to take, you know, a 90% hit like, like some stocks have. So, and then number four for this year is uh, another really difficult one. Um, just like it, it finally hit me emotionally is like, being in debt is being half alive. Like having a major debt liability, either on a business that's too, you know, too significant, um, you know, in regard to regards its cash flow, or having a personal debt um, is it, it's a drain that you don't. It's really hard to quantify because it drains your time and it drains opportunity cost. So yeah, I don't like debt anymore. <laughs> I might be overreacting too far the other direction, but um, like over the last me. couple of years during these, Dave like, Ramsey yeah, has know, entered the chat. Uh, I know. No, oh my no. word! I hope not. No. Well, Dude, so but... here's the yeah. <laughs> well, okay, it's a, it's a totally situational thing. You shouldn't you shouldn't try to fight. Uh, don't fight the Fed, folks. So when the Fed makes debt a no brainer because it depresses interest rates to um, all time lows. You need to do two things. One, you need to see if there's a way that you can profit from that because there definitely can be. Like I'm just waiting for the Fed, you know, in a couple of years to uh, start dropping interest rates so, again so I can refinance my mortgage. Uh, that's going to be great. But then at the same time, you have to realize the, the effect that the Fed's behavior has on the market at large and make sure that you're not swept up in that. And I think that's something that we all failed to do is – we just saw this cascade of free money and thought, oh, this is great. This is normal. This is natural. There's going to be no negative consequence to this. Or, or I mean, I, I know at least I personally had an intellectual uh, acknowledgement that there was going to be bad consequences to it, but I totally didn't understand how it would work on the ground. And so I was completely slept, swept away by it. Um, so I think it's not just like debt is bad. It's just – if you allow yourself to be pushed into the downsides that 
easy credit creates um, just by its nature, you will, you'll reap a, a bad reward. So you have to, you have to take a more nuanced approach to it. I think, um, let me, let me steal yeah. man this yeah. real quick, Isaiah, if I could, um, yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to straight steel man the other side. Um, and it's this, uh, radical debt averse behavior is effectively a denial of your future ability to produce because debt is exclusively an exchange of cash now for an asset or uh, or something you you want cash now and you're betting that your future ability to produce is going to repay that either in the fact that you've chosen an asset that can do that without your effort or because the cash is enabling you to produce something that you were not able to produce otherwise without that buying power. And so in a denial of debt is effectively a denial of your own ability to produce value. So that's, well, that's my problem with it. But that's, I, I do want to, now that I finished steel, man, steel manning it, let me, let me agree with you because I do, I do agree with you, Fro, that all of us got swept up and totally blindsided and did not see what was coming in terms of the free money cascade. And I took, I took way too much, way more than I should have because I was, I was not factoring for all of the variables. So that's absolutely true. And maybe that's all you're saying, Isaiah, but um, I just wanted to put that out there. Well, yeah. And, I just and I, and say... I should well, I, I do want to add a little bit of nuance real quick. I'm not saying like, I won't touch debt. I, so, I mean, you guys know this from like sitting in board meetings that we were both at and like, like, you know, my position over the last couple of years has been like debt, 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 debt. And like the reason for that was just looking at the cost of debt, which was like well, near zero. And the thing that obviously none of us factored in is that that can turn around extremely fast. Um, and because what I was looking at was like, okay, you take on a certain liability and you'd only have to add a certain amount of, you know, production value or profitability or cash flow or, or whatever you want to call it, a relatively small amount to cover, you know, the, that increase in liability. And so this is, this is where you can like compute the return on invested capital of a business and say like the return, the, the ROIC of this business is just so much more than the added debt liability. Like this makes sense. And I still think that that's true in certain situations. The thing that's like, you know, obvious now is just that the situation, that situation can turn around so quickly and the consequences end up being really bad. So I am much less bullish now on debt as a vehicle for what I would call like speculative growth. Like mm. maybe there's like trend line oh, yeah. growth where you're especially adding, short you know, term debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. short term short term debt, debt for speculative growth is a, is a really bad idea. I totally agree with that. Unless um, unless you're I, I, expecting a low interest, unless you have good reason to expect a low interest rate environment to continue. And this is this is honestly Isaiah why I fundamentally disagree with your well 
if if what you're saying is I'm scared of debt overall, I would disagree with it. Because look at now, of course, we don't have the experience, but it's projected that we're going to be in a deflationary environment for a couple years. How long did the inflationary period before that last? Like like 10, since 10 years. 2008. Yeah, like yeah. a decade. So you have 10, yeah, you know, you have you have 10, 15 years of inflation and then two years of deflation. Uh, you shouldn't draw your operating procedures from the two years of deflation um, at the cost of having an understanding of how to work in the 15 years of inflation. Because if you look yeah, at I, I mean, I overall, the trend it, is inflationary. Yeah, I, I guess it comes also just from the fact that like, I don't know how to time that. Like, okay, three years from now, sure. I, I <clears> guess it's a pretty good bet that it's going to continue being inflationary. Uh, also, five fro, years from now, mm, I'm not sure. Eight years from now, really don't know. And and for the the thing that counteracts what you're saying of there's generally speaking there's a decade of assets inflating in value and then two eighteen months to two years of of assets deflating in value. Um, the 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 problem there, and I think an important variable is for a decade they're increasing on average, seven, six to 10% a year. And then during those two years, they drop 50, 60, 70% per year. So you have this gradual rise and then the sawtooth cutoff. And yeah, the time frame is shorter, but the actual monetary consequences are, are, are relatively equivalent. I don't um, think that's true. That's not true. Uh, if, you, if you average the- Well, okay, yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Even even with huge deflationary things like so that is one thing, uh, despite the absolute retardation that I engaged in in the stock market, one redeeming factor is that you know I looked at at things that had, I especially favored um, funds that had had um, been around before two thousand eight and still had a good return despite having been through that storm. Um, all that to say that like. Yeah, even with huge slashes in the value of equities and stuff like that, the trend is super inflationary. Um, if you look at a chart of the value yeah. of the dollar, well, I mean, yeah, one, it's no, just no, no. catastrophic. The trend is, is going to be inflationary, but because yeah. it's fiat money, and so in a sense, you're right. It depends. It depends on the asset. But there were some assets that from the 2008 crash that didn't recover until 2019, and so. They didn't yeah. recover their post-crash value until 2019. So I could that, be missing something, obviously, but in my my perspective is that the inflation definitely outweighs even the catastrophic losses it, in the deflation. It does over a it does over a long time frame. At least it has historically. I'm not confident that that trend is going to continue. Right. There's there's the state of the yeah. U.S. dollar as the reserve currency and. And, and that's well, a whole nother that's, discussion. That's a much, yeah, that's a much bigger conversation. Yeah. I, I, just, I think you guys are right and, in uh, cautioning please. me to, yeah, I think you guys are right in cautioning me not to change my operating principles. You know, don't, yeah, there's maybe a little bit of emotional whiplash here. Uh, so, you know, I'll take that. Um, but I, I still think that the concept of, so honestly, like if I'm going to be completely honest, I think a lot of taking on debt that happened over the last two years for me was really about, you know, failing to do the work of bringing on a better structured capital partner because yeah. it was easier to convince someone to do debt. 
<laughs> and so debt was debt was a proxy for bad decision making. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's and maybe you know gotcha. maybe there are times when equity is easier to make bad decisions around. Maybe right now it's easier to find bad equity than than it is to find bad debt. Maybe that's maybe it's the other way. But yeah, generally, like in an equity market, it, it just it seems to me like you're you're bringing on a risk partner, and that partner is going to you know red team your idea and find holes in it and all these sorts of things where where debt is not going to do that as much. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. But, well, um, and I think hopefully not pile on too hard, but I think you took on debt on really bad terms and well, from, from the, from the lender's perspective, it was really great terms and those really great terms uh, overcame the lenders. Uh, what may have been, um, <laughs> reticence basically it would have been way harder to How get did, debt if you hmm. were going for normal terms but you offered crazy good terms to this lender and whoever <laughs> he, it might have been whoever he uh, is hmm. whoever it sounds like or it sounds like was, maybe you have uh maybe maybe you have some personal experience with this no lender secondhand, no secondhand <laughs> most, that. Uh, <laughs> but gosh. so basically if you oh, had gone for like market terms you would have had uh, yeah, lenders yeah, putting true. you much more through the ringer, but you're like, Hey, I'll go for this. Uh, I'll go, I'll get debt easily because I'll offer, I'll offer crazy good terms. And then money's so free right now. I'll be, once I get the growth that I'm looking for, I'll be able to refinance this into normal terms super easily. But then yeah. the growth that you're expecting didn't happen. And the credit markets changed, you know, drastically and faster so, than they ever have. Changed. Yeah, faster than well, I ever and, have. That's another thing to point out. So, yeah, uh, there's a lot of what's the... I should keep I should keep moving on to my other my things. Though I think we should do another yeah, yeah. conversation about this topic in particular. But so my yeah, my number up. five learning for 2022 is I like to write, and that's something that I've known since I was six, seven, something like that. And I wrote for a long time during high school, and then I completely stopped because I got busy because I knew that writing is not how I was going to make money and I wanted to make money. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, yeah, I don't have time for this, but um, writing I think is actually a really significant part of like how I think and how I process the world. And so I've been missing out on not writing um, for the last like 10 years or whatever. So I'm writing again and I'm really loving it. So that's my number five. Make a quick Uh, prediction for when we get to end of 23, Isaiah's number one lesson for 2023. I hate writing. I'm not good at writing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I already know that. It's crazy that you say that, Isaiah, because um, I've been thinking a lot about what I want to do next once uh, my current side gig is is done. And in a um, caffeine-addled reverie, I just thought (laughs) about the one thing that over time had given me, like, the most satisfaction in life, and that was, like, mental breakthroughs and it, and it ties in closely for me with writing, with reading, with philosophy in general. That's kind of how I describe it really broadly philosophy and, and uh, the written arts, I guess I would say. Um, And so it's, it's definitely not something that's set in stone for me, but it's like, that is a vector that I have also abandoned also for similar reasons, um, just like an obsession or, or fascination with productivity, with making money. And I didn't really see it as, uh, feeding those things, but recently I was thinking about, well, if that's if that's what I'm good at, 
maybe I shouldn't fight that. So sorry, Isaiah. I'll, I'll let you finish up your last couple in just a second. But to your point, bro, I, I feel like for every single man, a conquest of the mind is the most satisfactory thing that you can accomplish. Isn't that right? Yeah, because like, even making money is about you know using your mind to create products, and right. it, it's it is all. Well, like like Rand says, I have nothing to gain from any other man except the products of his mind. Yeah. Mm. All right, Isaiah. Well, I'll let you wrap up. For, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, my last one is uh, probably the most important here, and that is family, and specifically family health, waits for nothing. It operates completely on its own timeline. If you have, you know, something at home that needs to be dealt with, especially a health issue. Uh, it is not waiting for you to get enough money to deal with it or for you to get enough time in your schedule to deal with it or anything like that. It's, it, it runs on its own timeline. It waits for nothing. It doesn't wait for you. It doesn't wait for anything else. Um, and yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a lesson I waited way too long to learn um, <clears throat> with really like tough consequences. So I've learned it now family and health waits for no man. Let's go drink some whiskey. Yeah. Already. Bro. What do you think I've been doing my boy? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to Kim's place, right? Go drink some whiskey. All right. See you boys. Cheers.